while you're turning there, I've had a lot of interesting questions come up throughout this uh, series, some very encouraging words, and people just hungry to know more and, and learn more, and, and that has been a huge blessing uh, as your pastor and, and just seeking more of the Holy Spirit and wanting to know more about the Holy Spirit and how he operates within the church. This whole series has just been eye-opening, I think, for, for many of us, myself included. And, and I'm just really grateful for what God is doing in our church through these messages. We're going to begin reading in verse 26 this morning. It says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation? Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak. Women, right there, okay, put your handguns back in your purse. Just hold on, okay? I shouldn't have said that. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Now, Paul summarizes pretty much the last five weeks, four weeks of this series here, but it wouldn't be Paul without adding in just a little something extra for us to dissect later, right? So that's what we're doing today, and, and the, the message today, if you take nothing else home, I hope it's a, a summary statement that encapsulates, as, as Paul has encapsulated so much in this final text, uh, everything that we have seen take place since we began studying chapter 12 And that is the Holy Spirit's purpose is to empower the church to draw people to Christ. I'll say that again. The Holy Spirit's purpose is to empower the church to draw people to Christ. We know this is the Spirit's purpose because Christ said, He will glorify me. That's the Holy Spirit's purpose within the church. That's that's what the Holy Spirit lives to do. That's His purpose. That's his main focus, is always drawing people to Jesus, Jesus taking us into righteousness, into the Father. That's the Trinity. That's how they operate. The Holy Spirit is is who or what drives us to Christ, what conforms us 
to Christ, and that's what we'll, we will see happen in all of us as His power and purpose drives us into closer proximity to Jesus Christ, our Savior. The Spirit is the one who convicts us of sin, who prompts us to prayer, who makes us better versions of ourselves, if you will, only as He makes us more like the Son. Then, from that point, we are then used by Him to draw others to Jesus. As a side note, when I wrapped up this writing this sermon and I realized it was the end of the series, I was, I was a little bit sad because I realized this is something that we, we need. This is something that every church has to have. And it's not that I'm not looking forward to Easter or I'm not excited to get back into the Gospel of Mark, but I really wanted just to dive more into the Holy Spirit. And I think many of you have expressed the same thing. I want to see more of the Holy Spirit within our church. I want to see His move in our lives. And, you know, like I said, some of the conversations I've had since we started this series has been incredibly encouraging. I believe the Holy Spirit is empowering this church and preparing us to use us for something new, a new season, as we draw others to Christ. I really do believe that. So today, as we wrap this up, I just uh, want to look once more at the Spirit's purpose, which Paul outlines for us, as well as the Spirit's peace and the Spirit's process as He works within the church. So we're going to look again to begin with the, the Spirit's purpose. We read in verse 26, What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Now you may not notice what just happened here in the text, but if you're paying attention, if you're, if you're looking closely at what Paul just wrote, he gave us an order of service. Now we're not Methodists. We don't stick to that order of service. like We don't cling to that. But Paul does give us a set order for how things are to occur within the gathering of the church. He says, you sing. There's a time for teaching and revelation. That's preaching. And a time for the Spirit to move. That would be the altar time, right? What we call the altar time. He mentions hymns. And that's very fascinating because we see instruction elsewhere that he gives to the church at Ephesus. He, he gives them similar instructions. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Worship is very key. If the songs we sing are not focused on Jesus, if they're not taking us to Jesus, if they're not based in the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God, then we cannot call it Spirit-led worship. Because that is how and where the Spirit operates from and towards. He operates from the Word towards Christ as He operates within us. If our worship music could easily be mistaken for a country song about an ex-wife, a pickup truck, or a hound dog, it's not really Christ-glorifying, is it? In fact, if that's the way we sing, we are, I would say, worshiping wrong. Spirit-led worship is Christ-glorifying, Scripture-based worship. You notice in Ephesians, Paul talks about 
the Psalms. He mentions the Psalms. That is the Bible's book of worship. We have 150 worship songs just given to us right out the gate, right? Other things we can sing. They're, they're hymns for us and spiritual songs is what he calls them. They're, the early church was writing their own music, not for a performance, not for a concert, but for worshiping Christ as God. In fact, early historians and early attackers of Christianity pointed to the fact that Christ's followers referred to Him as God. But if we get the right beats, people will cry. Right? If we play the right music, people will have an emotional experience. Who cares? Did it take them to Jesus? Because that's the point of worship. In our text, Paul also mentions a lesson. Because the church is dedicated to the apostles' teachings, to the preaching of the Word. It's similar to what we see in the book of Acts, Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Teaching is at the core of the church. It's how we make disciples. It's the one thing we also don't appreciate enough. We like the music, we like the performance, and we want the the emotional experience at the altar, but how many of you you find it easier to fall asleep during the, the sermon than during the altar time? I know because I watch you do it, okay? I'm not staring at anybody in particular, but we might need to check and make sure he's alive. I'm kidding. I totally promise I'm joking. The truth is we love the songs, We love the experience at the altar call. We want to bypass that teaching because so many times, if we were truly honest with ourselves, we want to be entertained. That's what appeals to our flesh. Paul warned Timothy about this very thing in 2 Timothy 4, 3-4. He said, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. One translation says doctrine. and I hear people say all the time, I don't like doctrine. I just want Jesus. Well, explain to me who Jesus is and don't use doctrine. You can't. But people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We all can slip into this, by the way. I'm not immune to it. You're not immune to it. We like to accumulate our teachers who tell us what we want to hear. We, we hear these, our YouTube pastors, right? We like to listen to them. But many times they're weak sermons, high on emotion, low on scripture, high on passion, low on preaching the gospel, and they're intoxicating. That's why Paul warns about these things. This is why he stresses the fact that good biblical teaching is vital to the church. He said to the Romans, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have now become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Good, sound teaching is also repetitive teaching because most of you probably couldn't tell me what I just said five minutes ago. So there's repetitiveness to the teaching. And that has to be educating people, growing them. That's something the Holy Spirit not only uses He enjoys. It's a harsh judgment upon a nation. We see this in the Old Testament to have a famine of the word of the Lord. 
That's in Amos. But it's an even harsher judgment that we bring upon ourselves when we reject the word of the Lord. Hosea 4, 6 says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will forget your children. When people are given good, sound teaching, but they want to chase after a teacher that gives them what they want, not what they need, that is, they're bringing judgment of God upon themselves. I'll move on. That's kind of my soapbox, I guess. Maybe I'm biased. Paul goes on in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 14. He mentions a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. That is allowing time for the Holy Spirit to move within the service. But it has to be done in a certain way, he says. Let all things be done for building up. The word for building up, it's only one word in the Greek. It's oikodomen. And it means construction or strengthening. It has to be done in such a way that it builds up the church. We've seen that clearly made through 1 Corinthians 12 as we walked through that a few weeks ago and went through that portion of this series. It's one of the core purposes of the Holy Spirit as He accomplishes His task, as He builds up the church in unity. The same word is used by Paul in Romans 14, 19. He says, So then let us pursue what makes for peace, for mutual upbuilding. Oikodomen, same word. Romans 15, 2, He says, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Same word. But he also uses it back in 1 Corinthians in chapter 3. He says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. What is he using to build? The Holy Spirit. His own Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit do this? Well, we've seen it throughout this series. He energizes the people within the church and he empowers them towards love and good deeds that unify the body, that grows the church. In 1 Corinthians 14, 27, Paul goes on. He says, If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret it. Now, when members speak in tongues, Paul gives instruction that should take place, that they should not all speak at once, but in turn. That it shouldn't be chaos. We saw this last week, right? It's the Greek word meros. In fact, it, it, it means in their part. And it's the only time here in Scripture that it gets translated turn. Every other place, it's, it's uh, their, their part. In fact, the King James translates it by course. And the idea seems to be, from what I can gather, is that the message in tongues as it's taking place is that it's possible for one person to begin a message in tongues, a second person to pick up that message in tongues and go as well, and even possibly a third person could give a message in tongues, and they all flow together, not necessarily in the same tongue, but the same message. We don't ever see that happening, do we? It's very rare. But one person is left to interpret. We know that interpretation itself is a separate gift of the Spirit. We see that in the list of the gifts in chapter 12, specifically verse 10. And what this tells us clearly is that not everyone is able to interpret their own tongues. Now, Paul did say in verse 13, 
One who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. But that does not mean that everyone who speaks in a tongue will necessarily interpret. It's not necessarily wrong either for a person to interpret their own message in tongues. But Paul is suggesting there needs to be time given for someone else to bring along an interpretation. And he's also, in fact, he's stressing the diversity related to gift distribution here. He's distinguishing between members with the gifts of tongues and those who have a gift of interpretation. They they would be two different people, typically. It's similar to how the gift of discernment is distinguished from the gift of prophecy, which again, Paul makes that clear back in chapter 12. And he also does that in verse 30. He says, do all possess gifts of healing? Do all possess, uh, sorry, do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? That's in chapter 12, verse 30. Obviously, the answer would be no. They're diverse gifts given to different individuals. But Paul goes on with his instructions with the gift of tongues. He said, but if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Now, does that mean that if we have someone give a a message in tongues, but the person who typically would interpret, say they skipped service that day, maybe they wanted to go fishing, or maybe they're on vacation, or they just got snowed in, does that mean that the person with the gift of tongues should have been quiet? No, absolutely not. What it does mean is that there could be an interpretation from someone else. Someone else may learn they have that gift. God may use someone else in that moment. And they could interpret themselves, of course. But if there is no interpretation, then we must disregard it. Don't try again today, right? Instead, just pray quietly and privately. We've seen that throughout the series. Perhaps that person should have kept quiet all along in their own private prayer language. And we're not perfect. We're not always going to get it right. That's Again, that's why Paul's saying this stuff to the Corinthian churches. That's why also we must show grace towards one another, why we confront one another in love, as Paul makes clear, the the motivation for the church. He gives it back in verse 1 of this chapter. He says, first and foremost, pursue love. So if someone gives a message in tongues, there's no interpretation, We still love that person. We just move on. If they do it again each week for a couple of weeks, well, then maybe maybe then we have to have a conversation. And it may be a hard conversation. That's okay. Loving someone means loving them enough to have those hard conversations sometimes. It means being willing to discern what has happened and address it as needed. Guys, amen, anytime. Remember, that's part of church history. We want to do that. Amen. There we go. Thank you. That's why Paul goes on. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. Now, when Paul uses the term prophet here, he's likely referring to those who operate in the prophetic gifting. He's not talking necessarily about the office of prophet like we see with Elijah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, John the Baptist. In fact, in Paul's last letter to Timothy, when he talks about elders and deacons he doesn't even mention at all in the pastoral epistles he doesn't mention the office of prophet at all so it's possible that even by that time that office as it had existed no longer exists in the apostles time but paul is speaking here directly to the prophetic gifting and he says similarly to how he addressed tongues he says two or three should speak then everyone else weighs what is said the rest especially those with discernment 
are determining the validity of what the prophetic utterance was, what what they meant, what they actually said, and so on. Having more than one person, by the way, weighing the, the prophetic utterance is vital. It cannot just be one person. There needs to be many watchers on the wall. You've heard me talk about that. We do this because it's easy for a false prophecy to slip in. And more, the more safeguards, the more watchmen we have discerning these things, the less likely a false prophecy slips inside the church. Even if their gift is considered higher, which Paul seems to hint at in verse 1, that does not mean that everything they say is going to be right. We should never take a person's word for it, especially when it comes to prophecy. What we weigh it. We, we take our time with it. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, Paul says, verse 30, let the first be silent. One commentator said, the one who first prophesies is to be silent. If another one sitting down starts to prophesy, such conduct avoids the confusing scenario of multiple speakers prophesying at the same time, as well as prevents the long-winded prophet from taking up too much time. It also assumes that the prophecy is spontaneous. They are prompted by the Spirit to speak. We saw last week in our text a scenario Paul gave when he wrote. He said, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say you're out of your minds? And again, that was a rhetorical question. Obviously, the answer is, yeah, they'd say we're nuts, right? But then he says, but if all are prophesying and an unbeliever comes in, he'll be convicted by what's said. But the message still must be heard. There cannot be confusion or chaos. It has to be understandable because the Holy Spirit's purpose is to empower the church to draw people to Christ, not scare them away or make it seem as though our faith is something incomprehensible. So next we see the Spirit's peace unfold. In uh, verse 31 and 32, Paul writes, For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. Now, Paul says you can all prophesy, but he doesn't say you will all prophesy, even though he wants all to seek the gift of prophecy. Now, again, in verse 1, he says, Pursue love, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Because prophecy, whether it is an interpreted tongue, whether it's a word of knowledge or wisdom, or just a clear prophetic utterance, It is so that all learn and all are encouraged. And ultimately, all are drawn to Jesus. Revelation tells us, makes it very clear, Revelation 19.10, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. When someone gives a prophetic utterance, we have to ask, how does this take us closer to Christ? Verse 32, a lot of people will brush by this verse because they don't like it or it's a hard verse, but it makes something abundantly clear to us. Not only were the prophets to judge others with discernment, they were also to have control over themselves. God does not desire some out-of-body, out-of-mind experiences. Those who receive and spoke in the Spirit of truth did so with a clear mind. There is not to be anything bizarre, ecstatic, trance-like, or crazy that, about people who have received a prophetic utterance or the presence or preaching of God's Word or the service of the church. Now, we may see that in the demonic. We may see that in the occult. But we are not to see that within the church. Paul has said as much back in verses 14 and 15 of this chapter. He says, 
For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. The human spirit is the primary conduit for God's spirit to communicate an inspired message. So it makes sense that the prophets would be able to control themselves and be silent when another person is speaking by the Spirit also. There's an Old Testament principle at work within this. And if we're not careful, we miss it. In King Ahab's court, he's getting ready to go to war. Him and King Jehoshaphat have made an alliance and they're going to go to war. And Jehoshaphat wants to consult God before they hit the battlefield. So Ahab calls together 400 prophets. In fact, uh, it's in 1 Kings 22, verse 6. The king of Israel gathered the prophets together. I know the words might be a little small on the screen, so I apologize. About 400 men and said to them, go, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But that does not convince King Jehoshaphat. He's got this, we like to say, a hitch in his spirit, right? He's got a check in his spirit. He doesn't like this. Something seems off. These guys keep going on and on, and they're getting more and more dramatic in how they try to tell the king he should go fight. So he says, is there not anybody else? Is there no other prophet? And Ahab says, well, there's this one guy, but he doesn't tell me what I like to hear. That sounds familiar, right? He doesn't tell me what I like to hear. So against his wishes, he ends up calling this prophet named Micaiah. Now, Micaiah comes in, and at first, initially, he tells the king what he wants to hear. And the king's like, no, I know better. You tell me what's going on. And he says, okay, you want to know the truth? These guys are lying to you, all 400 of them. He's had a vision. He knows that the Lord has said, you know what? I'm going to lead him out, and I'm going to kill Ahab on the battlefield. That's what's going to happen. And Ahab says, you see? You see? This guy never tells me good stuff. And what happens in the, in the, in the throne room of Ahab is chaos. Another prophet stands up, punches that guy in the mouth, says, well, I guess you know the Lord more than me, right? And it becomes a competition. And the only one, what's interesting about this whole exchange, the only one who's showing any discernment is King Jehoshaphat. And Micaiah, at the very end, he says, okay, if you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, hear all you peoples. Now, when he says, hear all you peoples, what he is saying is, discern. Discern from the chaos what just happened. Discern who's really speaking on behalf of the Lord. The Holy Spirit, when we are called upon to prophesy, He will not be defrauded. He will not be manipulated, but a person might be. 400 of them were that day. So it is vital that what is said is weighed and discerned, and if the person prophesying is unsure, then he needs to keep quiet and weigh it out. If it is a chaotic experience, or as it sometimes becomes, if you've ever been to the, the chapel services at, at a, a near Bible college, as I sat through many times in college, it can become competitive. And that's what we see really happening in Ahab's throne room. Each person has a, a message or a word from the Lord, and each one's different. And that's dangerous too. That should not happen within the church. Paul goes on, he says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Now, church, hear me on this. It is never, ever a good thing for someone to leave a church service and say to themselves, what was that all about? What was that? 
There needs to be an explanation. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. If the message was presented properly, if the Spirit worked as He does within decently and in order, when we leave the church building, we are strengthened in Christ. We are rejoicing. We may be convicted. We may be challenged, but we, are, we know full well what just took place. Not questioning what happened. For God is not a God of confusion. That word for confusion is fascinating to me. First of all, because it's very confusing to try and pronounce in the Greek, but it's akatastasius, akatastasius. And it typically means, or it gets translated, instability, commotion, rebellion. But primarily, when it gets interpreted, most of the time, it's instability and disorder. Paul uses it later in 2 Corinthians 12.20. He says, For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. James uses the same word in his epistle, James 3.16. He says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, in Proverbs 26, 28, it's translated this way, a lying tongue hates its victims and a flattering mouth works ruin. Disorder, instability within a church service, chaos causes ruin that has no place in a church. There's no place at all for such a thing. God does not cause confusion within his people. He causes confusion within his enemies. Now, when I've, I've grown up in the Pentecostal church and I've seen confusing services and I've seen people rejoice, I'm here to tell you this morning, they are not a time for rejoicing. They're a time for repenting. If there is confusion within the service, there is no better time to fall on our face and say, God, clear this up. Clean this up. And then he, Paul does this, this thing. He adds this little tag, as in all the churches of the saints. Now, most of the time, that gets tagged on to the next verse. But really, if you've studied Paul and you look at the sentence structure here, it's probably better to go with the preceding statement. When Paul uses similar phrases, he does this to conclude something he's just said. We see them do this, for example, earlier in 1 Corinthians in chapter 4, he says, This is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Then in chapter 7, verse 17, he says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. We see similar wording there. He's concluding a thought. But it wouldn't be a good sermon series without a little controversy, right? If I hear one person talk a shotgun, I'm going to ask the ushers to escort you out. Here we go. Verses 34 through 35. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, first of all, we get hung up on the thing, this is about women. But really, men, if we were the men we're called to be, we have the answers for our wives because we're paying attention. We're studying beforehand. All the wives said, Amen. There we go. 
But this is not, and I want to be very clear here, very crystal clear, this is not talking about women preachers, not in this text, not in this moment. Paul's not addressing women pastors here. He's talking about the order of the service. What's interesting and what fewer people seem to miss in context is that Paul had earlier made a caveat for women to prophesy. Back in chapter 11, he says, but every wife who prays, wives are typically women, right? (laughs) At least in his day. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So wives can pray, wives can prophesy. Well, typically when you do that, what are you doing? Speaking. Right? You're talking. You're saying something out loud. So let's, let's hash this out. Now, there are various arguments to be made here, but like I always say, context is key. When a woman prays or prophesies in this context, likely she is doing that with her husband's permission or at a time within the service that it's acceptable to pray and prophesy. What Paul is referring to here, and I think a common sense approach to the text makes sense here, verse 35, is that women were speaking out of turn. The word Paul chooses here for speak is the Greek word lelain, and it means to talk or to chat. In other words, to have a conversation, right? In in verse 35, he says, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So here's what's basically happening. What we can gather from the context is that within the Corinthian churches, When they would gather for worship, the wives, the women, desired to learn. And I don't fault them for that. I don't think anybody would fault them for that. Paul doesn't fault them for that. But everything must be decently and in order, right? So when when someone wants to learn something, what do they typically do? They ask questions. So here's what was likely happening. And in the context of the time, when the church would meet, the men would sit on one side of the sanctuary, and the women would sit on the other side. Now, we're not going to do that today or anything like that. But if we were to divide up the sanctuary, that's what it would kind of look like in the Corinthian church. And the pastor would get up and he'd begin preaching. He'd begin reading the epistle or the letter from Paul or Timothy or whatever. And he'd begin talking about it. And some lady on one side of the church would shout out, Hey, Hector, is what he's saying true? And her husband would say, Shut up, Ethel, I'm trying to listen. And then some other lady in the back of the church would say, Pastor, could you address Ethel's question? Because I want to know too. Is, is that right? You know, it would become chaos. It would become disorder. So the women were asking questions during the sermon, during the teaching, when everybody, not just the women, should be silent and listening. And their husbands, in this society, they would have been more educated. They would have been better fitted to explain things to their wives when they got home. If the husband didn't have answers, then he would go back, he would talk to the pastor or a deacon or or a leader in the church and try to get an answer for his wife, and at that point for himself as well. Now, some scholars think that it got so bad within the Corinthian churches that it was possible the pastor was even being cross-examined by the ladies of the church. But you said this, now you said that. But you said this. Well, but didn't Paul say that? Didn't Apollos say this other thing? And you see where the division happens within the church that Paul addresses earlier in the letter. So Paul's forbidding women speaking uninspired things while others are preaching, teaching, prophesying, etc. If their speech is inspired like a prophecy or a tongue, it must be done at the right time 
and then it should not be hindered or stopped. In other words, the gifts do not discriminate by gender, but everything must be done so as not to cause confusion. Otherwise, it's not from the Holy Spirit. The Spirit brings peace. The Spirit empowers the church and draws the church closer to Christ as we draw others. Now, if you still want to talk about women pastors, if you still want to learn about women preachers, I would refer you to the Assembly of God position paper on the matter. You can find it at ag.org, and you can look that up and read that for yourself. Or you can wait in a few years. I might be brave enough to give a sermon on that. But for the time being, the Spirit has a process that he works in the church, and so we're going to conclude by observing that, the Spirit's process. Paul goes on in verse 36. He says, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? Again, we see Paul asking a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is, no, we're not the only ones the word of God has reached. We're not the only ones the Spirit has spoken to. This was meant to, this, this phrase, this question was meant to target those who had become arrogant in their spiritual gifts and believed they had all the right answers. It was meant to humble them. We know Paul's apostleship was often under attack. In fact, we see that earlier in this letter. We see it in, in 2 Corinthians. Paul's going to lay out for them all he had to suffer as an apostle everything he'd gone through. And his apostleship had been under attack early on, even whenever he wrote the the epistle to the Galatians, possibly the second oldest book in the New Testament. He ends it by saying, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of of Jesus. Of course, nobody's going to listen to that. He's going to get even more trouble for it. He's going to have more problems throughout his ministry. And the Corinthian epistles prove that, that people did keep causing Paul trouble in spite of his suffering. So so Paul gets a little fed up here in this first epistle to the Corinthians. And he says, you know, did did this come from you? Were you you made apostles? Were you made the, the representatives of Christ? Are you the only ones who have the word of God? And again, that should have humbled them. Well, no, no, absolutely not. They should submit to the apostles' leadership. Paul goes on in in verse 37 and 38. He says, If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. And basically what Paul is saying in that text is that if you think you have the Holy Spirit, agree with the Holy Spirit. If you think you have a word of knowledge, if you think you have some kind of gifting that gives you insight, then that insight should align with the word of God the word that's already been spoken. He warns the church of people, and we see them even today, people who think they know better than Scripture itself. People who will say, well, the Apostle Paul says this, but I disagree with him there. Uh, You can't do that and still be a Christian. You can't do that and say you still believe the Word of God. It's infallible, it's inerrant. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, he says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, He does not yet know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. If someone doesn't acknowledge all the the extra commands and all these other things that the apostles wrote about, if they don't grasp the command to show love, then there's a real problem there, right? First and foremost, we are to love one another. If they don't recognize that, they're not recognized by God. Love is the key motivator for all that we do. Love for God, love for our neighbor. That's the great command, right? If we love our neighbor enough to give them a sandwich, 
when they're hungry, but we don't love them enough to give them the gospel, do we really love them at all? Because they're going to be hungry tomorrow. But where will they spend eternity? Do we love them enough to give them the bread of life? Do we love them enough to give them the good news of Jesus' death and what it means? Paul would say, if you contradict that command, there's something wrong with your Christianity. And that's what these leaders were doing. They were contradicting what the apostles were teaching. And, and Paul made it very clear in the previous chapter, what we would call chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, love is at the core of the Christian's life. But if so-called prophets' words contradict an apostle's writing, then there's a problem. It shouldn't, be, uh, shouldn't that be enough to let us know they're not a prophet of God? Jesus makes this very clear. He says, not everyone who says to me, I'm sorry again about the text here, a lot on the slide. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They'll say, Lord, Lord, because they think they are close to him, because they're able to do these things, but their hearts are far from him. They deny his word. They think they know better. They're on their own path. They're not on his path. He says in Matthew 10, 33, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. Now this is key. This is important because the apostles were Christ's representatives to the whole world. The apostles who wrote scripture were as if Christ himself were going in their place or they were going in his place, sorry. That's what the word apostolos means. They are his agent. They are his representative. How you treat the writings of the apostles reflects how you treat Christ. You heard me say this, I believe it was last week. If, if a pastor or a preacher doesn't care enough about Scripture, they won't care enough about you. If they don't want to be honest with Scripture, they're not going to be honest with you. And that's what Paul's getting at here. They are denying his message, they're trying to contradict it. They think they know better than, than Paul and thereby are saying they know better than Jesus himself. If their message denies those whom Jesus sent, those who wrote scriptures, then they are denying Christ. Paul goes on, he says, So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. This is key. This is central to some of our core doctrinal beliefs. Paul is emphasizing something that he has said throughout this chapter. He's making it very clear that we should be active in the gifts of the Spirit, not forbidding them. Prophecy is preferred, but tongues are also permitted. Private praying in tongues should not be discouraged either. He said back in verse 2, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. He goes on, verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. He repeats himself to an extent in verse 5. As he previously said, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so the church may be built up. Paul wants the church to build up the church through the power of the Holy Spirit. But I want to be clear, the gifts are not to be forbidden. Now our cessationist friends and brothers in Christ, I believe they're our brothers in Christ, they would disagree with this. They think they should be forgiven or that they died out. I saw a tweet from one recently said that the gifts died out in AD 70. I don't know where they get that. 
That's when the temple was destroyed. I didn't know the temple had a spiritual satellite dish that broadcast the gifts to the, to the world. That's, maybe that's what they're thinking. I, I don't know. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says they are to continue. They are to still happen. We're not to forbid them. But he gives very clear instruction as he wraps up this chapter. He says, but all things should be done decently and in order. Now, the, minute, the reason there are cessationists, the reason there are so many who don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit is because they've seen the abuse of these things. They've seen the neglect of these things. They've seen these gifts abused, faked, and used improperly or inappropriately or for completely inexcusable purposes. In fact, in the past couple of years, I, I, I know of two Pentecostal pastors who've left the Pentecostal denomination or faith, whatever you want to call it, to become cessationists because they've seen the abuse of the gifts within their own churches and didn't have any answers. Spiritual abuse is a very real thing. In fact, I've, I've witnessed that as well, where people will try to use Scripture or they'll try to use the spiritual gifts to manipulate other people. This has happened throughout church history, from the Catholics to the Charismatics in the church. That can't happen. As your pastor, I, I promise I will do everything I can to keep that from happening. But we do not forbid the gifts. We want them to equip us for outreach, to build up the church, empower us to be that, that beacon of light, that beacon of hope for the world around us. But if we abuse them, we do not deserve them. And if we neglect them, we do not deserve them. All things, Paul said, all things should be done decently and in order. This solidifies the church. This unites the church under a common banner as we advance in the Spirit. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. This is how the Spirit's process works. He empowers us to reach outside our walls. That, and that might even mean reaching across the aisle and blessing a brother or sister in Christ. He empowers us to grow together, to grow in Christ. That's the Holy Spirit's job, to draw us to the Son. I'm going to move to close in just a minute, but there's so much more we can unpack within this text. There's so much more concerning the Holy Spirit. We've, we've barely scratched the surface, but I, I hope it's a starting point. Many of you have heard me say this since the first time I think I spoke here, before, long before I was your pastor. I want to move with the Holy Spirit, but I want the real. I want the truth. I want the Holy Spirit as He is, not some manipulated thing, not some emotional experience. I want the Word of God preached and confirmed and speaking to us today as the Spirit still speaks through us, through it to us. Anything less, any other move of God that does not fill us, speak to us, grow us in Christ, grow us together as a body, that is not the Holy Spirit. It may be a spirit. Someone told me recently about this series. They said that they've been in classes and, and for weeks about the Holy Spirit. And in one hour in one of our services, they said they walked away knowing and understanding and appreciating the gifts of the Spirit so much more than they did from a class that lasted almost two months. Now, as a preacher, that's flattering. I'm not going to lie. But as a Pentecostal pastor, that is heartbreaking. The reason people, millennials, Generation X, and so many are flooding to the Reformed Baptist movement and out of the Pentecostal movement is because we've done such a poor job explaining the Holy Spirit. We brush it aside. We say, well, that's the Spirit. That's the Spirit. We think we can, we can teach someone to speak in tongues 
rather than just let the Spirit do His job. You're not the Holy Spirit. I'm not the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit works within the church and empowers us and grows us closer to Christ. I don't want to settle for anything less, and I don't think this church does either. I'm going to move to close in prayer, if you would stand with me. And if you're here, and maybe you've not experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or you've never um, received your gift in the Holy Spirit, maybe maybe you're saying, I, I want to receive that this morning. If that's you, the altars are open. We'll have, we'll have our prayer team pray with you. But first and foremost, the Holy Spirit conforms us to Christ. That's what we see happen in all of us. That's the purpose and the power of the Holy Spirit, to draw us to Christ so that we bring others with us to Him. Father God, this morning, Lord, we love You. We worship You. I'd say we invite Your Spirit, but Lord, You're already here. Your Spirit is omnipresent. We just welcome it in our lives. We want more of it in our own lives, Father. Speak to us, speak through us, Father. Jesus, you told the woman at the well that the time will come where we worship in spirit and in truth. Lord, we want your truth. We want your spirit to operate within this church, to draw us closer to the Son, bring us closer to you, bring us closer together to unify your church for your glory, Father. Amen.